The Troubles were a time of low-level war in Northern Ireland and the UK beginning at the end of the 60s and spanning until 1998. I spent some time in Ireland in the early 2000s. It's a really lovely country. I even took an Irish history class while I was there, which I am desperately trying to remember now. Some things I do remember, uh, the stuff about Jameson being a Catholic whiskey is probably bullshit because Jameson was founded by a Scottish guy who was most likely Presbyterian. I remember some stuff about the Guinness factory. Did I mention that this was my study abroad semester in college? I think I have some Irish ancestors, but I'm not totally sure, and nobody in my family really thinks of themselves as Irish, so the conflict between Ireland and the UK has always been a bit puzzling to me. The idea of the island of Ireland being one country makes a lot of sense to me just from a neatness standpoint, but I know there are lots of people in Northern Ireland that are quite happy that they live in the UK and don't want anything about that to change. I know that the issue is really hot button for a lot of people. It's just that for me, from an outside perspective, it has always been hard to know enough to feel like I know what the right arrangement would be, or like it would be a good idea for me to form a strong opinion and argue for it here. As part of that Irish history class I took, we visited Belfast and saw the elaborate murals that people had painted on the sides of their houses, alternately taunting the IRA and their allies, or threatening the UK loyalists, or commemorating heroes of Irish independence, or proclaiming solidarity with the people of Palestine. There was this culture of painting your most controversial political opinions on a 25-foot-tall wall for the world to see. It's like if we all decided to put up billboards of our hottest tweets along with our home addresses. I'd be getting a lot of sandwich partisans throwing rocks at my house. Today's film courts a lot of the controversy surrounding the Irish Troubles because that is the war against which it is set. It's our boy Jack Ryan, Harrison Ford edition, saving a British royal from an attack by an ultraviolent splinter of the IRA. Sean Bean's impassioned Irish terrorist vows revenge for the death of his brother, who Jack kills in the process of stopping the attack. Jack tries to go back to his quiet life teaching cadets at the Naval Academy about ancient Greek maritime warfare, but the IRA won't let the issue drop. They attack his family, and he's forced to rejoin the CIA in order to work on the task force that is trying to stop these maniacs who are, checks notes, trying to fight for the reunification of Ireland? See, I like this movie, but even I forget that it is set in the real world and came out when there was still active violence in Ireland and the UK over this issue. I can imagine there are people out there, probably some of you even, for whom these are really painful memories. But to me, it winds up feeling just like a high-concept backdrop for a spy thriller. I don't really have those strong feelings, and that's weird to think about. An issue that other people can be so certain is something that I don't even feel like I can penetrate. Anyhow, we had to get this one into the feed, because we're not going to leave any Jack Ryan films unwatched. They are the original Porkchop movies, after all. And that's my commitment to you, our loyal supporters. Excuse me, Jack. Tell me one thing in life that is absolutely for certain. Today on Friendly Fire, Patriot Games. Welcome to Friendly Fire, the war movie podcast that won't be anything like you've ever heard before, Sonny. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. I'm John Roderick. 
I guess he says li- little brother, not little, Sonny. Little brother. Your show opens have really turned into a theater for you. Yeah, they have. You're throwing out all your best accents. It's great. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I really nailed the Northern Irish accent. <laughs> Northern Irish. I never thought Sean Bean looked like Peter O'Toole until I saw him standing in a desert. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. That's my hot take from watching this movie. God, I I am not wearing potholders for this one. <laughs> Get your potholders out, Adam, because this is going to be hot take central. <laughs> Welcome to a this is a pork chop movie. So uh, so yeah. yeah, we're speaking directly to our donors. This is a pork chop movie that was extremely controversial in these like very weird ways all the way through like John McTiernan was asked to come back for like Alec Baldwin was 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 squeezed out of of playing the role of Jack Ryan so that they could get Harrison Ford which is who they wanted all, the whole time but then Tom Clancy was pissed that they got Harrison Ford and didn't like him in the part Tom Clancy like publicly distanced himself from the movie that's because Clancy and John Milius were best pals and wanted to, <laughs> to make their version of this film, which would have kicked ass. Well, it was supposed to be John McTiernan directing a clear and present danger script by John Milius. And With Alec could Baldwin. Could you imagine? With Alec Baldwin. Yeah. And oh, that would have been amazing. When the studio wanted it to be Patriot Games, McTiernan said no because he's Irish-American and he didn't want to get in trouble. Right. I grieve for the Milius movie that we were deprived of. He's not going to betray his countrymen. You just love right-wing filmmakers, Adam. <laughs> he does. Adam is a freaking reactionary when it comes to war movies. He's like, <laughs> <You're> gonna, wow. <laughs> you're going to be the scariest grandpa ever. <laughs> I didn't realize I had the basketball hoop set up behind me. Like, you guys are just going to start the slam dunk contest. Listen, Ben, I am 100% on Adam's team here. I'm blocking all your shots on this because Harrison Ford is a terrible Jack Ryan. It should have been Alec Baldwin. I'm not defending the choice of Harrison Ford. All right, all right. I think Harrison Ford is a better Jack Ryan in Clear and Present Danger than in Patriot Games. Oh, well, because by the time they make Clear and Present Danger, it's plausible that Jack Ryan has become a CIA functionary and is like going around handing out business cards to drug dealers. But <laughs> what we what we saw between Hunt for Red October, which I think all three of us agree is one of the great movies, and this movie was what, a couple of years during which time Jack Ryan aged sixteen years and went from a plucky <laughs> really changed. Yeah, went from a plucky young operative who's jumping out of helicopters to a guy that owns a $3 million Maryland coastal estate? He turned into a boat dad. Yeah. Oh, my God. A boat dad that drives a super shitty tourist station wagon. Hey, don't knock those tourist <laughs> station wagons if they have the SVO motor. <laughs> Real hot rods. I didn't get the sense that that had the good motor, I, d- I didn't John. either. I didn't either. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when you set your car chase in traffic, it's hard to <laughs> be specific about how good the motor is or isn't. But uh. right, And she drove a Targa, the lowest of Porsches. Operator, I want to make an emergency breakthrough. Yeah, but it, she has a sense of style. She does. In a way that, that Harrison Ford's Jack Ryan doesn't. I was thinking a lot of Redford's character in Spy Game. Oh yeah, compared yeah, to this that's version right. of Jack go. Ryan, like because I think they are they are of similar age, 
And I think I think we're supposed to believe they're a similar skill, but the Redford character has so much more style yeah. than Jack Ryan. And and that's like a part of Jack Ryan's whole whole mythos, right? That he is not stylish, that he's just dogged yeah. desk guy. He's Jim from the office, unstylish. <laughs> but in this film, he's a cold-blooded killer. <laughs> Although he's chastised by his CIA upper dude for not being a a field operative, for not having any, like, field skills, and yet he somehow, having been in the Marines, has imbued the Jack Ryan character with such badassery that even John Krasinski can play him and we, I guess, believe that John Krasinski can, like, do flying karate chops and disarm 15 guys. Have you watched any of the new Jack Ryan on Amazon? Oh, I did. I mean, it. you know, I gave it a try, and it just gradually dragged me down because he, the only hero— Where is the DNA of this character in that so one? Gone. It, it's so gone. The, he's become, yeah. like, this Superman who— seems to you know he's like gump he finds himself in every situation he's like i don't know i'm not <laughs> i'm not that into it he trades on the stolen comedy valor of being just a desk analyst right. but he's out there leading the delta force squad like he's the first one through the camp stolen comedy valor of the desk jockey whoa that's a film paper. i mean that's that's supposed to be like the wink, wink. This has always been our Jack Ryan guy, sure. but he's more like jacked Ryan. <laughs> he gets all those laugh lines. He gets to be the nerd when it's time to be the smartest guy in the room. But then he also gets to be the, the Delta force. Le- I mean, all the Delta force guys are like, you tell us what to do, Mr. Ryan. I've never seen that TV show, but I have seen this movie. <laughs> <laughs> and this movie. All right. This movie has a lot of that. You really grabbed the reins of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get us back on track. Jack Ryan gets his Jack Ryan-ness out of that montage we get in the center of the film where he comes back to the CIA. They hand him a, a, a pile of folders and he does, it's, it's all in montage form. Somehow he sits in the middle of the night with the folders all spread out on the floor and he's reading this page and then he goes over and looks at that page and he holds them up and he does the, and he looks confused and then he looks and he goes to the bathroom and then he solved the case. He remembers the ponytail. He remembers the ponytail and then he can super like, oh, the best scene in the movie is when they, when they reference Blade Runner so hard where they're zooming in that? and he's like enhance <laughs> enhance and it's the same like and I, I i felt like getting up i i got out of my chair and tried to slap the i tried to slap the fucking screen i was so that mad that doesn't work john i was you slap the watch right off of your wrist <laughs> what the thing that gave jack ryan his groove back was rose i love rose yeah, Rose is oh, great. Yeah, Rose is nice. It's always nice to have a very competent, cute little older lady. She's a mom, but she's also a badass. And here's your night table reading. I've seen Cleaner and Present Danger so many more times in this film that I was I was seizing on those moments where we were getting repeat characters, and Rose was one of them. Yeah. But very few others. 
we get we get Greer like like we love. Greer's one of the greats. True. But I was surprised like Robbie, the Sam Jackson character, he's not a carryover. He's a he's a one and done. Why did you why have you seen Clear and Present Danger more than Patriot Games? The year it came out was a big oh, I reason. See, I, see. I I was told it might be Amelia's film. <laughs> <laughs> but this seems like it would have been fodder for late night cable television movie rerun just as much as uh, yeah. because that that seems to be often how you see a lot of these movies, right? Or how you saw a lot of them watching them on cable. Yeah, the USA Network bought all of these films from this era and then played them constantly every weekend of the year. I was always get them, getting them at Movie Express, our local video rental, because we didn't have cable. But this was definitely like a heavy rotation movie for me. You never miss a chance to cable shame me. Yeah, well, Ben, ben. you know, Ben's family were socialists, Adam, and so they didn't have cable. They didn't even have basic cable. Like that as a as a cultural touch point is true for many people, but it's not true for me. So I didn't it like I wasn't force fed this because I had 30 channels and this was one thing to watch on one of them. He's doubling down on it, Adam. You know what? That distinction is interesting though. You 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 seeked it out. Yeah. It was just given to me, or sought it. You sucked it out, mm-hmm. Ben. This uh, so so there was a another controversy after this movie came out, which is um, Daily Variety reviewed the film, and I will pull a couple of quotes from this review: right wing cartoon of the British Irish political situation, and morally repugnant, ultra violent, fascistic, and blatantly anti Irish. Wow. This review caused Paramount to pull all uh, advertisements from Variety to punish them for publishing this article. And there was like a big spat between the, like the publishers of Variety and Paramount that they like wound up having to, you know, bury the hatchet. But like the author of the review is uh, Irish American and like was... Like at, at some point, like the publisher of Variety said that it was like super unprofessional and they should never have given the review to an Irish American. Like, like he couldn't he couldn't be a prof, a professional film reviewer about a topic like this. Like this, he should have recused himself. Yeah, this movie came out like during the troubles, so like this was very this is very touchy stuff. Did this reviewer also review in the name of the father? <laughs> I don't know. Like all they reviewed in Variety was yeah. films of this subject. I think he's now a teacher. At, yeah, he's a t- teacher at San Francisco State University now. Joseph McBride wrote the yeah. wrote the review in question. Go pipes. Yeah, I mean there was not a there was not actually a ceasefire in Ireland until 1994. So the ceasefire came just a couple of years after this. So although it was during the troubles, it was, it was a little late, you know, it was a little late in the game. It was, it was describing an Irish, like an IRA resistance movement. That was kind of things that, uh, of the 10 years prior. Right. And uh, like all of the Jack Ryan stuff, right. It, Jack Ryan was a cold war hero and hunt for red October just made it under the line of like a plausible cold war problem right and then all of a sudden jack ryan is like cast out into the world with no real bad guy and so they're they're 
they're flinging him into all these like he now it's the irish now it's the colombians right. it just feels like so um such a small world for the cia to really it, it i don't feel like it's enough to support a movie and that's why this isn't really a movie about that this is a liam neeson level yeah <laughs> they've got my daughter like revenge movie it's tom clancy's home alone it is right because the whole movie is about his beautiful wife and their cute daughter and their lovely home and how they're in danger and harrison ford has to save them and it's not if you compare it to hunt for red october where the stakes are global thermonuclear war the stakes in this movie are like who gives a shit frankly right i mean it if if Ryan and his wife and daughter are all murdered and thrown into the ocean, who gives a shit? And if the you know the British minister for Northern Ireland is blown up in a car bomb, the Irish peace process is going to continue. It's not you know like what are the stakes here? That's uh it, apparently in the book the uh, the British royal that is threatened with uh, assassination is Princess Di. Oh wow! See now that would get. That would put butts in seats. It's interesting that this movie courted so much controversy, but shied away from that kind of controversy. When did she, did she, was she dead by then? No, no, no. She didn't die until the the late nineties. Are the Royals just too precious to depict being threatened in film form? I think so. I don't think, I think that it would have been one of those things that didn't test well. Hmm. That's uh, uh, that's why my uh, script about devouring the royals has not been able to get <laughs> financing in Hollywood. I mean, people say eat the rich, but then when you show them doing it on screen, it's like sure people lose their appetite for it, literally. <laughs> I want to turn my, my British royals into a beef broth and then mix it with sherry mm. for a cocktail. Mm. See, this is going to come out way before that, and nobody will know what you're talking about. I know. <laughs> But you guys will know. Yeah, we'll know. I do the show for you guys. Like, if Jack Ryan is the American answer to James Bond, starting his film series post-Cold War is terrible timing. But, like, this movie, like, spans a a series of events and, and like, kinds of people that are very, like, relevant to Friendly Fire. Like, the, the training camp in North Africa is something I, I feel like made me think a lot about the the german radicals in um seven days in entebbe like the the idea that there would be like potentially german radicals and uh northern irish ira people training at at the same or similar kinds of camps in north africa is really interesting yeah that's that whole that whole era that early 80s era of plo ira Bader Meinhof, Red Army. And they like trace guns to like a guy that supplies Gaddafi to the thing. Right. Like Eta in uh, in the Basque country. They were all part of a global revolution. Yeah. I, I should say that there was an attempt to assassinate John Major in 91 um, where they actually shot a mortar at 10 Downing Street. Jeez. Uh, the IRA like put a shell into the front door or whatever. Um, and they, you know, they were still active, the IRA, shooting at British soldiers and whatnot. But 
but it just feels like this the the like Libyan training camp, the global reach of the IRA, they had already started to lose sympathy in the world. People were just tired of it. And I think the movie does ca- cover some of that. The the Shin Fen guy, the, the Richard Harris character. That is like one of the breakthroughs that they come up with when Jack Ryan at the one hour mark joins the CIA again. Like, what if this is not the IRA, but some crazy splinter group? It took an hour of the film for anybody on the other side to figure out that that might be possible. That's something that I thought was very interesting. Like the idea that the IRA sort of styles itself as an army and has structure like that. But then one brigade commander can decide that uh, he's going to like kind of fight the war his own way. And then suddenly it looks like a terrorist organization through everyone else's eyes. And like, and what a risk it is if you're in a resistance, you know, campaign like that to to have people like that in your command structure. Well, and you notice when the the Shin Fen guy gives gives up the location of the terrorists, he gives them the British girl. Right. Right. He he never actually shows any that file contains no information about irish people right that that the uh the female uh villain in this movie for you know i think as a narrative device is revealed to be british halfway through and then this plot twist can happen um well uh, where, where the characters save face or don't behave inconsistently there's no reason for her to be british yeah uh, she just is so that this so that this leak is possible I mean, I thought that uh, Richard Harris gave him that gave him that leak because when you bring Sam Jackson to the bar as your wingman yeah. to threaten somebody, <laughs> that's a real flex. <laughs> yeah, and he gives him the shoulder, doesn't he? He walks right through him. Yeah. But Harrison Ford never li- he never follows through on that threat. He never puts his daughter on TV. He never yeah personalizes it. He makes the threat and then doesn't do anything about he it. He does get in trouble for <laughs> for making the threat. So you guys were talking about Annette. Yeah. You don't you don't actually have to give someone a blowjob when you're undercover, right? <laughs> she just blows Reardon before shooting him in the head later like for the fun of it. We're shown we're shown her kissing his stomach, Adam. Reardon's eyes crossed like he's Dan Aykroyd in Ghostbusters. <laughs> That's the thing. He's just reacting to I don't know if a girl has ever kissed your stomach, Adam, it's but it's never very happened. very hot. It's super hot. She doesn't. He probably still had his pants on. Sounds nice. No, no, he didn't because he dies with the with the sheet around his waist. Oh right. Maybe she's kissing his belly, but a ghost is sucking his dick. Ooh. Did you ever consider you that? Never, you never think about all the Irish dick sucking ghosts that are there. That hotel did look sort of haunted, you know. <laughs> when I go to an Irish pub, that's my favorite song. When the fiddle player. <laughs> oh, let me tell you the story of the Irish dick-sucking ghost. Yeah. <laughs> I do have to say that that uh that her disguise, her 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 disguise of a red yeah, wig and nothing slightly else. Slightly longer hair than than her normal hair. It's, she's a uh, Brit- British Superman. <laughs> yeah, Mission Impossible this film is not. <laughs> It's super less effective as a disguise if you always wear it. 
<laughs> right? I mean, yeah. a disguise, the point of a disguise is to wear it and then wear a different disguise the next time. But she's all, she's like always wearing it. So all Harrison Ford is looking for is that wig through the whole movie. Yeah. But it's always there. Annette kisses Kevin O'Donnell right after shooting Reardon. What the, what the hell is Kevin O'Donnell into? You were worried that she had just given him a blowjob and he was getting a little bit of... A little bit of the other man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that, that's another Irish song I, I don't like the tune of. <laughs> ben, you got lyrics to that one? <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you the time that Paddy was snowballed. <laughs> Oh, those uh, those Irish eyes are are not shining. <laughs> anyway, she's sort of the key to the whole thing because when they when they retask the satellites, which was the worst Counting Crows album, Boy. they zoom in on her in the beach chair. She's the key to the whole thing, because yep. why would a woman be in a camp in North Africa unless? It's a woman with a with a red wig on, and it's the same person. Right, might have been Rosamund Pike getting ready for her Entebbe raid, though. You never know. Right. But can you imagine? First of all, when she arrives at the terrorist camp, she is wearing a tailored skirt suit. Like she, yeah, she, she has looks a, great. <laughs> she has an above the knee skirt on, and like a big shoulder padded, like custom couture khaki army girl suit, which is a ridiculous outfit to be wearing on your way to a desert camp. But then she's wearing the wig too? What is she wearing the wig for? It's not like they're giving out fitted garments at this camp because when poor Dennis, the bookstore guy, waddles out there uh, to join <laughs> oh, yeah. the the gang, I mean, he looks dumpy as fuck. Poor well, he's about to get a machine gun right to the face. When you when you Oof. get desert camo, do you get issued desert shorts the way Dennis was? Or did he roll him up? No, they gave him they gave him a clown outfit because they wanted him to feel like a fool before they killed him. I feel like there's a version of this film that has more to do with Dennis that goes something like, yeah. uh, Dennis was a lowly rare bookshop owner, <laughs> but when he gets over his head with the IRA, he's about to go out of print. They stole my beaks! <laughs> this summer... <laughs> What's the movie called? We got it. We got to name it. What's the movie called? I called it Out of Print. Oh, Out of pr- Out of Print is the name. Yeah. I thought that that was the slogan. No, I think it's I think it's Dennis Cooley colon Out of Print. <laughs> okay, uh, the colon. It's the, it's it's really the bane of all movies. Do you think they bother to bury Dennis's body so that the satellite uh, doesn't get a glimpse of him, or they just leave him out there? They put some they put some sand over him. I was reading yeah. about how they did the top-down uh, satellite footage from from when the SAS takes out the camp. That's uh, they shot that in the daytime, and the actors all wore black bodysuits, and then they reversed the uh, colors. It's it's just the oh, negative because wow. they couldn't do they didn't actually have like thermal imaging that was plausible. That's neat. That scene is so interesting. Like that's 1992, and that's basically the same type of thing that we saw in Eye in the Sky, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. the CIA and SAS are involved in this like trans-global hit on a on a site. Well, and I, I love, I mean, this is one of those movies from this era where it's possible to, to start making spy movies that are really like technology orgies. Yeah. 
right? Like, like prior to this, not very long prior to this, your technology spy movies were all like the satellite took some pictures and then ejected the film canister (laughs) over the Nevada desert. And we developed the film and here's the prints. Right. Let's look at it through a jeweler's loop. It's like a 72-hour process. <laughs> right. Cloak and Dagger is the only spy movie I'm familiar with that, that predates this one. If you think about just, I mean, just uh, even War Games, which was, what, 10 years before this. Right. I mean, there's no, it's all just like the, the, the satellite picked up a missile launch. It might be a cloud. Right. And so, but what's great about this is it's a technology movie but the technology looks really funny now. Yeah. They're giant satellite phones and they're, you know, they're green screen monitors. <laughs> Harrison Ford's inability to like cut into his wife's phone call in the right. Porsche. That's great. Thank you. But ultimately he does all of his sleuthing with paper and file folders. Yeah, and like microfiche. I thought that the the SAS hit on the camp scene was fascinating the score gets super eerie in that moment like we see the the helicopters coming in over the dunes and then we cut and we're just in the room like we're never we don't see soldiers running around on the ground with silenced weapons it's all that was pretty good from the top down and it like it's like really scary it's it felt like the movie is like warning us about this like how abstract the warfare becomes when this is possible like we're just watching as these shapes moving around on this screen go from moving to not moving and that's that's a hit the score was a force multiplier because it's james horner and it's james horner's alien score that that is used yeah I feel like that, I feel like viscerally you, you go back to aliens there. Yeah. And, and the dude just like, like sipping on his cup of coffee going like that guy's dead or whatever. Like it. I know. Yeah. You see that guy crawling back to his trailer. (laughs) (laughs) The, um, I saw this movie in the theater and that scene in particular, uh, we hadn't seen before. Yeah. And you know, you always want to think that the CIA has got all these secret the gizmos and that they can do way more than they let you know. And But that was a thing that seemed plausible and to be shown it felt like uh, super exciting. And, you know, I kind of went to this movie like already super dubious and was you. dubious throughout. <laughs> but But that was real like, edge of the seat stuff and if you think about the raid on bin laden it wasn't much more the technology wasn't that much more sophisticated right even you know uh, even 15 years later so i thought that was that was extremely effective and the way that james earl jones was just like well here we go and then that's it it was it was moving even. Yeah. It feels like you're you're being shown a secret thing that you shouldn't be allowed to see. And I think it still feels like that, which is to the credit of this movie from 1992, you know? I think yeah. this is one of the parts where Harrison Ford's performance is really strong because the look on his face isn't like, isn't excitement or thrill. 
it is like I think he's as disturbed by what he's seeing as anyone else, and that's very affecting for a film goer who's who's never seen anything like this or considered it before. Yeah, he's tripping out because uh, this is him. I mean, this is his mission. This he called this right, and now he's here and he gets to. He this is probably the first time in his career he has to sit there and watch the handiwork of his file shuffling, right? In terms of dudes getting getting killed, and that's got to be like pretty rad <laughs> yeah you can't ever throw a file folder hard enough to kill a guy i've well, tried you, you you can if you're um ricky J. <laughs> ricky J could kill you with a playing card he really could yeah and it would be an honor to die that way yeah you would fall to the ground saluting i look the threat of the ira is real and pronounced in this film but do you think that these splinter guys are just dumb like do you ever see them as the threat that they're supposed to be i thought that the character of um kevin i felt like he was although although they have superpowers right like they know because they have an inside guy they they know everything before it's going to happen and they can pull off these incredible feats like Raising a drawbridge, stopping a police can't convoy, blowing mm-hmm. up the escorts with rockets, and freeing their dude and killing everybody. Like, pretty dumb. <laughs> but Kevin O'Donnell was a believable character. He had, he had a plausible motivation. He was... He was the only professional on the crew. Yeah, right. He, was, he had done a thing which was break off from the IRA to become more aggressive. And that was completely believable from, from the standpoint of this movie. And he was efficient and he was thinking ahead. He had a plan. He wasn't emotional about it. I just wonder if this film neglects to tell a more interesting story by not having his crew more capable than they are. Well, they, but the thing is they are, they just introduce Sean Bean, who's, or Sean Miller, who's a phenomenal psycho. Like this mm-hmm. is one of my favorite Sean Bean performances because he's just he's extremely believable as a as like a, a unhinged, too young, uh, just born murderer. But then the movie like completely, the whole film just hands itself to Sean Miller, who's acting with no motivation other than revenge. And that's what takes this, what could have been a tense political thriller into all that stuff, all the politics, all the global terrorism, all the CIA, it's all sidelined for this Liam Neeson film. That's just like my daughter. They took my daughter. It's like two. It's like Liam Neeson versus Liam Neeson now, because because <laughs> yeah. John Miller is motivated by he killed my brother. Why haven't they made that movie? <laughs> like we 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 never learn anything else about Sean Bean. He never has. He has zero personal relationships with anybody. He has the same look on his face through the whole, like, well, through the whole film. He smiles one time, right before he's about to be rescued. And then he goes back into this just like furrowed brow, angry psycho face. 
Ben, I can't stop thinking about Liam Neeson calling Liam Neeson in a sort of lost highway kind of Liam Neeson film. I don't know I've who you are. I've got a particular are. set of skills. That makes me an, a nightmare for Liam Neesons like you. Someone make that movie. When, when, when they're make, back to making movies, let's, let's hope that Liam Neeson is up for one more super dumb yeah. action movie. But I mean, think about this movie. If the IRA had found a plausible reason why killing Harrison Ford served their global aims. Yeah. Now, there isn't one. But if the IRA in this movie was actually pursuing their goals and had and and Jack Ryan was trying to stop them. I mean, and they are they. They are nominally trying to kill the Brit. Yeah. I mean, Sean Bean is the one that goes rogue at, when they're doing the hit on the house because it's supposed to be a hit on uh, Lord Holmes. But he's, he's rogue through the whole movie. I mean, why was that Lord Holmes plot not sufficient to make this a tense thriller, right? Why did it have to become a movie where a little girl is routinely... I mean, a little girl is put in the hospital yeah. and loses her spleen and Harrison Ford is, you know. She's in like three gunfights in this movie. She's going to be very yeah. traumatized at the uh, at the end of this. And the thing is, that just feels cheap to me. That just feels like audience manipulation. Mm-hmm. Like we don't have enough of a plot here, so we're going to put a little kid in Jeopardy multiple times to put you on the edge of your seat. And that just feels like kind of the worst kind of. It's cheap heat. It's cheap heat. It's exactly what it is. Well, and it's ben- and it's beneath Jack Ryan, right? As a as a character that we could have, he could have become Jason Bourne for us, right? And instead, he became like a like a mall movie theater, <laughs> just sort of Harrison Ford vehicle during the era when Harrison Ford was deciding that he was never going to play a character with any flaws that weren't charming. I think I know the answer to this because of. Tom Clancy distancing himself from the film, but like this film is not made for the people who love Tom Clancy books. It's made for people who like movies and they don't even have to be Jack Ryan movies, right? Mm. Because the, the Jack Ryan we got at the, all the way during Hunt for Red October was a guy who was reluctant to fire a gun. Like he didn't want to be out in the field. He, he was nervous about it and, and often fearful for what was going on around him. And the Harrison Ford Jack Ryan is ready to rumble at all times. He's not reluctant. He is occasionally seized with PTSD over what he's been through, but he doles out death and punishment throughout this film in a way that the Alec Baldwin character seems totally incapable, or at least totally reluctant about. Maybe that's why they have to threaten to kill this little girl through the whole movie. You need to activate him. Yeah, you need to activate... um Harrison Ford, except in the opening scene of the movie, Harrison Ford watches some assassination attempt that he has no interest in and by his own admission flies into a rage and goes in and karate chops everybody. Do you think it would have helped to know the circumstances around Jack Ryan leaving the CIA? Like, Like the events between Hunt for Red October and this film, I wonder if they, if it could have bolstered the character in a way that makes this leap a little less distant. I just pictured it was uh, Sam Jackson offering him a way better, you know, 
compensation package to come to the Naval Academy. Yeah. Yeah, you know those uh, Naval Academy teachers are really raking in the yeah. big dollars. You know, the headhunters found him, and they're like, listen, we can really make this worth your while. <laughs> we'll throw in a tourist station wagon. Harrison Ford's like, can you make me a professor? I'm a professor in lots of movie franchises. <laughs> I mean, you remember from the first, from Red October, that he flunked out of the, or not flunked out, he didn't get through the Naval Academy because he got injured, right? Something bad happened to him? Yeah, there's a more recent Jack Ryan film um, with the guy that plays Captain Kirk in the new Star Trek films as Jack Ryan, where it depicts that, like some some sort of injury that he sustains as a soldier, and then he's at like Walter Reed and gets recruited into the CIA from his hospital bed. I haven't seen that one. That's the one with Costner? Yeah. Costner and Chris Pine? Yeah. It's okay, like all Jack Ryan movies. (laughs) I feel like he 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 left the CIA for some kind of bureaucratic reason. There there's no there's nothing interesting. There's that like scene where his wife is like I like we can't go back to that life, which implies right. that it was uh he was like a bit of a workaholic or something, but like right. she isn't. Right. What a fucking hypocrite <laughs> Kathy Ryan is. Give me a break. She just fucking loves pulling shards of glass out of little boys' eyes. Yeah. Can't take yourself away from it. She's another one that's a total hero in this movie. She has zero yeah. flaws. Zero yeah. flaws. She's a genius. She's a great surgeon rescuing kids. She's also, like, beautiful, pregnant, and keeps a lovely home mm. and drives a Porsche. Yeah, really does. No housekeeper in sight. Yeah. We're supposed to believe that she's doing that all herself? I think Jack Ryan pulls his weight around the domestic space and... uh and that's why they have such a nice house. <laughs> I I am just I am just bored by movies where the heroes have no flaws. Um, <laughs> you know, and especially when the movie tries to tell you that their flaws are that they work too hard. <laughs> like that's yeah, the flaw. That's the job interview question of like what's your What's your biggest weakness? If anything, I work too hard. Yeah, yeah. I'm a little bit too sincere, I would say. I work long hours for low pay, and I really shouldn't, you know? There's a a flaw in this movie that an internet pedant uncovered. Would you guys like to hear about it? Lay it on us. Kathy and Sally Ryan arrive at the hospital via a life flight helicopter. Medivacs in Maryland are primarily done by the Maryland State Police, and there is no life flight helicopter anywhere near the state of Maryland. Hmm. But couldn't it have been... That surprises me. Couldn't it have been a Virginia-based life flight helicopter? Nowhere near the state of Maryland. What if it came from (laughs) Delaware? What if it it flew over from Delaware? That would technically be near the state of Maryland, John, and there's no life flight helicopter anywhere near the state of maryland i cannot stress this enough pennsylvania i mean i guess it's right there we're getting a little less near with that guess yeah that's uh yeah but it's still pretty close i guess it sort of depends on how you want to define near but Mm. um yeah the uh the house apparently is actually in california that coastal uh living arrangement that they have uh another pedant was saying that 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 house kind of strange credulity because where they're depicted as being there's lots of waterways around there but none that are just like clear open horizons of sea and like 
that would be like at least 80 miles from the the naval academy to to have a, a strip of beachfront like that but yeah you'd be out in ocean city somewhere yeah a long way away well there's the, there's that shot where he he runs out of annapolis like he get he gets in his car and he's like i gotta get out of here he he speeds <laughs> out of annapolis and then he's in alexandria and it's like i don't i remember washington dc in 1990 if a Ford Taurus leaves Annapolis <laughs> going 60 miles an hour <laughs> what, what engine package are we talking Adam you're doing some homeschooling there John maybe this would be a good word problem yeah yeah I would like to know how I mean he he had to drive he had to drive pretty fast yeah I mean those those shocks hit the bump stops going over those uh, speed bumps there for sure Boy, I'll say I'll say they did he might have been in he might have been in coastal Delaware did the internet pedants think about that mm, I don't think that the internet pedants are only interested in correcting things they're not actually interested in like checking their own math I see they just want to watch the podcast burn <laughs> they don't have any ideology <laughs> <laughs> And when I looked in the IMDb goose section, I found a ruby the size of a children's fist. (laughs) (laughs) They should have cut Sean Miller loose uh, after the van mission, right? That's when you knew he was too loose of a cannon. You don't want to recklessly drive on your way to an illegal thing. That's dumb. You save the reckless driving for, for the escape. He also should have been on team jogging outfit. And he killed Brian been. and not Team yeah. Van. Why he really he nailed that team look. jogging outfit. It's a good look. I guess, oh, because Jack Ryan would recognize him standing in front of the newspaper dispenser. Right. But he could have just hidden somewhere. They really nailed the aesthetic of, like, smoking Quincy guy <laughs> hanging out by a, a newspaper stand. Tom Brady hair mustache. Made it myself. Like, let's talk about this house. The house is amazing. This colonial is unbelievable. What kind of heating system was in that basement? <laughs> was that a coal-fired furnace? That was the, that was the furnace from uh, Home Alone. <laughs> like, yeah. yells at Kevin McAllister. An Irish-American? I, mm? I thought for sure we were going to get that, that moment in the basement where there, there's hand-to-hand fighting and then Sean Bean gets thrown into the side of it. Thrown and into that would have been nice. Like that. that would have been very Raiders of the Lost Ark. Yeah, very Terminator 2. Don't give me Chekhov's furnace and not pay it off later. Here, here. <laughs> I think that that I think that the house and the setting of the house is one of the least plausible things. Who do we? Who is Jack Ryan? What do we know about him that would suggest that this was his dream house? And they live all the way out in BFE. These three. He's coasting off a of Kathy. Kathy's wearing the pants. And, and earning the bacon. They would have been living in a Georgetown townhouse. <laughs> Damn. That's who these three people were. Georgetown well, townhouse. They live in London in Hunt for Red October, right? Oh, is that right? Yeah, because he's always like, uh, he's always having uh, anxiety on the airplane, flying to CIA headquarters to show him pictures of submarines. You know what? Both movies have that totally bug nuts ending. 
Hunt for Red October gets the strange, uh, the strange shot with the bear in first class, and then we get a, an elliptical edit to gender reveal cut to credits. Yeah. What? <laughs> what is going on? Is that? I'm trying to remember how uh, Clear and Present Danger ended. Did it give us the same kind of weird ending? Um, I think uh, I think it's him filling out the expense report for the helicopter he bought using a business card. <laughs> yeah, if memory serves. That's a great moment. <laughs> hey, he, that that brings up another great point. There are a lot of really we're allowed to compare Jack Ryan films. Yeah. I'm just going to say it. We we can't we're compare war films to each other, but I think in the Jack Ryan universe, it's allowed. There are a lot of fun moments in Clear and Present Danger. What are the fun moments in Patriot Games? I feel like this film is lacking that. There's no humor in this movie at all. Here's what I'm getting at. I think an an essential quality of a spy film, I feel like, is the sort of spy craft that other films give you more liberally than this one. And I think that's what maybe makes this not a spy film in the way that a Jack Ryan film could and should be. This, This instead is the Liam Neeson film. And Liam Neeson films are not spy films. Those are beat em ups. Shit. So you're saying this is a beat-em-up? Well, it's certainly not a spy film in the way that I think many Jack Ryan films are, are meant to be. Hmm. I mean, there's uh, there's keyhole satellites and yeah. there's surveillance of a rare bookshop. There's some spy shit. Jack Ryan himself is not at all invested in the Irish struggle, right? He doesn't care about a free Ireland. He doesn't care about maintaining royal control over ireland and neither does the cia the the criticism that this is like a right-wing fantasy about being anti-irish that's insane rings a little hollow to me because it doesn't doesn't seem like the movie gives a shit about that it's like it's like a a ripped from the headlines conflict against which to set a, a dramatic film but there's no the, the the Irish troubles are not elucidated. Right. So we have no idea what the what the IRA's like stand is, why they're doing this even. The, everything they do just seems wanton. Right. And so there is no it's not political at all. It's just it's just these guys are are like um cardboard cutouts. If Kevin O'Donnell had an axe to grind that we could like really sympathize with if he was taking way more extreme actions on behalf of a cause that actually felt like i mean like i agree with his cause like with with his motivation but not his methods that would be a very interesting bad guy well yeah but what we're given instead is we get to spend some we get to spend quite a bit of time with the fictitious royal the lord william holmes character and he, we're never shown him issue any kind of bad directive against Northern Ireland. He's just portrayed as like, like a sweethearted. He's mostly uh, just working on his schedule in this movie. He's working on his schedule, and he's willing to come all the way out to Jack Ryan's house in the middle of BFE without his wife to bring this special award, which should, by all rights, be presented at a public ceremony. Yeah. Also, Jack Ryan couldn't couldn't reschedule a dinner party at his own house. <laughs> that's that's why it happens there. <laughs> anyway, that that's what. I, but I think back to your earlier point. It's not a spy movie because 
the whole political plot is it's just not there really i mean we get a little bit of of spycraft with the bookstore but that even is being conducted by the london police right that yeah. spy camera and all those you know the door busting at the bomb factory that's all being led by a by like a scotland yard guy right i wonder like why why does a thing about the ira feel less less like a spy thing than a a thing about russia or whatever like why does the political hot buttonness of it go up so much when it's about a subject matter like this like it's like you could tell that it's a hot button issue because the movie is so careful about never pushing it you know well the, these are the these are the dying days of like spy movies or political thrillers or global thrillers where it's white people against white people right like there's not anymore you're not going to get an international thriller unless what you, unless what you have is a either a like a white revolutionary who's leading the struggle for a third world country or a global psycho billionaire otherwise <laughs> the you know like the the enemy of the americans now it, it's always going to be a foreign and by foreign i mean othered or people of a, of a non-European. So this is like the last time you could really put a movie together where the only, uh, the only people of color were like high ranking American officers. Yeah. And everybody else is like a red, a redhead or at least a fake redhead and everybody speaks English and the political motivations are all, um, you know, there's not a, there's not a racial or there's not a racial element. I guess there is a colonial element from the Irish standpoint. Yeah. And like a, it, but it's, but it's not sectarian enough. Sectarian element. Yeah. I, if, if you had made this movie and really gone into the IRA, like that scene where right after Jack Ryan, like saves the day at the beginning of the movie and he's on the front page of the London papers and on the news and totally outed and you see James Earl Jones sitting in his office watching this on TV. Like you imagine the reprimand that he's going to get. Like, why did you do that? That's not your job. And also now you're completely, you're, you know, like your status as a potential CIA person is burned forever now. Right. Yeah. You're accidentally famous and therefore useless to the... <laughs> yeah right but we never see that reprimand yeah i don't know i mean that the whole movie hinges on the fact that he that harrison ford intervened in this thing that he had no actual stake in and so as a consequence i have no stake in this movie wow oh shit withering i can't wait to to hear what your score is john but before that we need a rating system I'm here to tell you what it is. It isn't that Jack Ryan thinks of everything. It's that he considers most things, right? Even his daughter's goldfish that his mother-in-law may or may not have fed while they were in Europe. But he didn't remember his own anniversary. What is wrong with you, Jack Ryan? Hmm. 
Anyway, a goldfish is known for having a terrible memory, like we are supposed to have for the superior Jack Ryan films that surround <laughs> 1992's Patriot Games. So our scale of one to five goldfish we will be using to review this film. To me, this is a lesser Jack Ryan story, and I think maybe it's the least of all because of its challenge, the challenge presented to Jack Ryan. And I think it's because the enemy comes to him. I think in the better Jack Ryan films, he has to go out into the field. He has to go be uncomfortable. He has to go hunt down the bad guy. And the reason is also why this is a fun Jack Ryan movie. Like, he's emotional and vengeful in a way that we rarely see Jack Ryan in those other films. So it's I'm kind of in conflict about how to feel about Jack Ryan, though I am fairly certain I know how to feel about the film itself. Like, an interesting Jack Ryan does not redeem an uninteresting film. I do like Harrison Ford playing a little bit in his own actorly margins here. I like seeing him enraged, and I like seeing him hang a tear on his lower eyelid about ready to, to squeeze that thing out. Like, those are qualities you don't see Harrison Ford use uh, in many films at all in his career. But, like, the bottom line for me is I think I like every other Jack Ryan film more than this one. And that's not to say that it's bad. I just think that this isn't the one when I'm hungry for a pork chop I'm going to reach for. So, uh, two and a half goldfish for me. Oh, wow. Ouch. Wow. Okay, Wow. Didn't see that coming. That was brutal, Adam. Yeah. Two and a half goldfish. You like that dumb Ben Affleck one more than this? A thousand percent more than this. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> I, would, Whoa. I would love to write that film paper. Whoa. Wow. It is superior in every way. Uh, you can publish that in my, uh, in my daily entertainment industry rag, and then I will apologize to the studio poobahs. <laughs> on your behalf the only thing that that film lacks is james earl jones which everyone misses a james earl jones in their film but yeah i mean that's that's a better story and it's a better jack ryan that's a dog shit movie this is a great movie 4.5 goldfish whoa wow no come on that's you're just yanking our chain you can't just give the score the jack ryan that is provoked to rage at the beginning of this movie and then is on like a is on a simmer until he is forced to rejoin the CIA at the one hour mark of the movie is a very interesting version of the character and I also think that like this movie maybe gets slept on in terms of how how much it foresaw in terms of what our global uh, you know techno war stuff was going to look like going forward in 1992 i think that uh i think it gave us like a an eerie forecast of of what was to come for our country and like i think a a corny piece of shit movie wouldn't have nailed as much as this one does so that's why 4.5 i really enjoy revisiting this film in the same way that me not liking rambo 3 that much isn't isn't a criticism of you, Adam. You not liking this movie that much isn't a criticism of me, even though it's one of my faves. That is just a, a mentally healthy way to be 
that I will never know. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Our, uh, I, I'm trying to model a certain uh, a certain way of being for a certain kind of internet commenter who, if you say anything <laughs> even slightly derisive of something they like, treats you like a terrorist that deserves to die. Uh, well, I'm going to just make this review 100% personal about both of you ding-dongs. <laughs> All right. It's not even about the movie anymore. It's about how dumb you both are. Wow. Yeah, review us. Shit. Dumb and wrong. Here's the problem with Adam. <laughs> uh, I, so all of the flaws in the movie we've covered, I think, uh, but Ben wasn't listening. But it is a, it is a capably made early 90s, extremely dated in tone, but capably made th- thriller right there are thrilling parts it's thrilling sort of thrilling and it's and it's and you see the budget of it right and the the and the budget is spent not on nothing right there's there's interesting stuff in the movie the entire final act of the boat chase is so (laughs) lame it's just so bogus it's like the most bogus i can't even believe that 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 that's where they went you know did you read that they shot an underwater fight scene for the end and they had to scrap (laughs) it because it tested so poorly (laughs) like this is actually the the better of two boat fight versions that they use you know the the fact that sean bean ends up impaled on an anchor one of the ugliest deaths i've ever seen to to watch that happen, Harrison Ford would be traumatized the rest of his life. To see an anchor go through a guy? Because it didn't just stop halfway. That's not how you stow anchors either, right? No. But I can't, you know, as much as I want to just like review, you know, like have my review be based on it being just a hot steaming pile of garbage does stick in your head a little bit there's peter o'toole there's um taut action sequences i mean there's a there's a very very dumb and implausible car chase scene in traffic that never really is fully realized but there is tension there i gotta give it three goldfish three goldfish and i resent having to give it that (laughs) wow this is a joyful moment in every episode ben who's your guy my guy is the bouncing little baby that the ryans are anticipating oh a boy or a girl we don't know we'll find out in the next movie which harrison ford was i think supposed to do three of these and uh only did two what are they, do they have a little boy in in uh, Claire and Present Danger? I can't remember. I was too focused on the uh, on the awesome action sequences in that movie. I just lived for that cliffhanger. It's the worst ending to a movie. I couldn't. I turned to my movie watching partner there in my bathtub, and I said, <laughs> "Your rubber ducky." <laughs> I said, "What a piece of shit!" And she was like, "Total piece of shit." And I was like, "Couldn't believe it. Really bad." It seems like a joke that went too far that a screenwriter had. Like, certainly this isn't going to be the ending. We'll write it on set. John, who's your guy? My guy is the uh, the British cop who looks exactly like Eric Idle. 
Yeah, he really does. <laughs> Who is in some authority. Uh, he's like bossing the, um, he's bossing the other Scotland Yard guy who ends up being the one that leads the charge later. Uh, he bosses Harrison Ford. He's real perfunctory with everybody, but he's also a pretty capable interrogator and seems like a, he, he, he does these bossy interrupty things with our leads that, uh, that the film kind of telegraphs it wants you to not like him. But in every every scene where he's doing his job, he's doing his job pretty well. And he gets in the prison van with uh, as an attempt one last time to see if he can get any response out of, out of Sean. And then he's the one that says, open the van door, which I, I, I'm not sure why he said that. They could have held out a little bit longer because he had to have known that they were going to shoot him in the back of the head. Like if I were facing a situation where I was about to get shot in the back of the head, I would prolong that situation as long as I could. You wouldn't turn around. Well, I wouldn't open the door to the armored van. I would like Uh. hold out. Like they're going to shoot the bridge keeper anyway. They just blew up two cars and shot everybody like the bridge keeper. I'm not opening this van to save the bridge keeper. I've got a high value prisoner here. I'm going to last stand this shit, but he does it. <laughs> he does it cause they wanted to get the scene over with, mm-hmm. but then he sits on the, he's got, he's on the ground. They put the gun to the back of his head and he's like, can you just fucking shut up and get this over with, get on your way. And I was like, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> what you say in that moment. You don't give them any satisfaction. You don't beg for your life. Get it over with, he says. That actor, David Threlfall, is the dude in Master and Commander who's always bringing food to the captain. He's like the ship's steward. Oh, who's pretty grouchy in that movie. Yeah, does not like all of the scratching away that they do on their stringed instruments. No, he's got long (laughs) sideburns. Oh, he's wonderful. Yeah. I didn't notice that he looked so much like... A uh, cast member of Monty Python in that movie. Yeah. Adam, who's your guy? I can't believe that this person went unchosen. So if it's going to fall to me, I'm obviously going to pick the Sam Jackson character, Robbie. Uh, Robbie gives Jack the purple target medal in front of class. This is why he's my guy, because this is one of the best taking the piss out of a guy moments in movies. <laughs> like Jack is a hero. He's being worshiped by his class and, uh, and Robbie busts in to just really kick him in the nuts in front of everyone. Pretty fun. Yeah, that was great. So Robbie's my guy. Why didn't they bring Robbie back for clear and present danger? You got to do that. You really got to know your target's sense of humor when you get a medal <laughs> like that yeah. made up. Like, that's either going to go over great or really bad. (laughs) Yeah. It felt like they had those medals lying around. (laughs) I'm just thinking he's he's like the commandant of the Naval Academy or something. Like, he probably has a challenge coin guy. And he's like, you know, we order thousands of challenge coins from you every year. Can you knock off a single giant challenge coin that I could, like, (laughs) hang on a ribbon? Do you want to know something crazy? Yes. This is Sam Jackson pre-Pulp Fiction. Wow. Why didn't they keep making Jack Ryan movies? Because what I just read, 
searching for Robbie Jackson is that Robbie Jackson succeeded Ryan as president of the United States after Ryan retired in the book The Teeth of the Tiger. Whoa. With Ryan believing he could leave the country in Robbie's capable hands. Ryan was the president in the books? Yeah. Yeah. Whoa. After serving out the remainder of Ryan's term, Robbie campaigned for his own reelection. Wow. Oh no, while traveling in Mississippi, however, Jackson was assassinated by a 67-year-old man who was a member of the KKK. And and Tom Clancy was like, that man was the hero of that book. (laughs) (laughs) I know that Harrison Ford was paid $9 million up front and then had points on the back end of a movie that made like almost $200 million worldwide. Whoa. That's some float plane money right there. That's right. That's why he moved to Montana to live with Calissa Flockhart, which honestly seems like the most boring marriage in all of Hollywood. Like, what the fuck do they do up there? They just like hot tub and bran flakes. Doesn't that sound nice? No. If I was as rich as Harrison Ford, I'd live on an aircraft carrier parked right off the coast of Venice, California. You don't think Harrison Ford's life isn't exciting? He's crashing planes into golf courses every other year. <laughs> it's. I don't think it's exciting. I think he's boring. He could completely, he could duplicate his apartment in Blade Runner and live in, he could go into it every day and sit in there and be sad and drink whatever, space bourbon. Yeah, but he's one of those... He's one of those actors that famously doesn't care about the roles that he's had. Like, he doesn't care about Han Solo or, or, or Blade Runner guy. He thinks people that do care about Han Solo are idiots. Yeah. And doesn't care if they know that. Agree about that. <laughs> <laughs> what happened to this episode? I don't know. It really went off the rails at the end. Anyways, we're leaving it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranick, I've been Ben Harrison to the Victor Go the Spoiler Alert. <laughs> friendly fires pork chop feed is a maximum fun podcast it's hosted by ben harrison adam pranica and john roderick it's produced and edited by me rob schulte our logo art is by nick ditmore our theme music is war by edwin Starr, courtesy of stone agate music Make sure to use the hashtag FriendlyFire when posting about the show on social media. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, Adam is at CutForTime, John is at John Roderick, and I am at Rob K. Schulte. Thanks so much for supporting Friendly Fire. Tell a friend. We'll see you next month with another Porkchop film. Fund.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.